Good morning. It's Easter, right? Yes. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. Uh, thank you all for uh, being here this morning, and thank you all for your practice and devotion. Thank you most significantly to my teacher, Abbot Galen Roshi, uh, for the opportunity to speak today. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say I enjoy composing these talks, but I value them. I value them um, because, you know, they give me an opportunity to sort of reflect on my study and um, <coughs> gather them into something that hopefully I can express to some of you this morning. Uh, so about 17 years ago or so, um, about 17 years ago, I realized that I didn't know anything about Buddhism, which was weird because um, I had been raised in the Unitarian Universalist Church um, and had really learned about, you know, most of the world's major faith traditions in Sunday school, but somehow, I don't know, they just, they, Maybe it was me. Maybe I just wasn't there that Sunday. Um, but yeah, I realized that it was a you know a gap in my in my knowledge, and so you know I, I decided that I needed to fix that, and I I found a text a book um, on Amazon that seemed appropriate, and uh, bought it and read it. So I won't claim to, you know, have a vivid memory of like exactly where I was or, you know, when it happened that I read in that book, um, the Buddha's Four Noble Truths. And anybody here who is not familiar with the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, the, the Four Noble Truths as originally taught by the Buddha in um, his first sermon um, are the truth of suffering or stress, right? That, that life, our existence contains stress, suffering, dissatisfaction. The second truth is um, the cause of this stress and suffering the truth of the cause. Um, the third truth is the truth that this suffering ceases, has the potential for cessation. And the fourth truth is the path that the Buddha taught towards the cessation of this suffering. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily have you know, a specific memory of where I was and what I was doing when I first encountered them. But I do remember the moment, you know, I remember 
I, I remember the moment that I encountered these. Um, you know, something resonated really profoundly with me, such that I, you know, remember it 17 years later, um, which was not something that I had experienced with other spiritual teachings. Um, I don't have a similar distinct memory of the first time I encountered the Heart Sutra, which of course we chanted this morning and chant regularly here at Zen Center and of course in Sanghas and communities throughout space and time. Um, but I do know that I had been chanting it probably for a few years before um, I noticed the part where Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva tells Shariputra that there's no suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path, no knowledge, no attainment. Um, and realized that, you know, she's referring to the Four Noble Truths there. Now, you know, granted that section is, you know, kind of tucked away in a larger passage where Avalokiteshvara is talking about lots of other things that, given emptiness, don't ultimately exist, like eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, sight, sound, smells, old age, death, like, you know, pretty much everything, it seems. You know, but even for a tradition like Zen, specifically, that doesn't seem to have much of a problem with contradiction, uh, yeah, that's a doozy, you know? Um, and that tension uh, between suffering, its cause, its cessation, and the path to its cessation, on the one hand, and uh, on the other, no suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path has been in uh, the background of my practice ever since and I, I noticed that. So the Heart Sutra is, um, belongs to like a very expansive family of, uh, of sutras known as the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. Um, and the story goes that these teachings uh, were towards the were were hidden away by the Buddha towards the end of his life. They were given to the king of Nagas, which are water deities, um, who kept them safe at the bottom of the ocean for many centuries until they were ready to be expounded on. And at that point, uh, a teacher by the name of Nagarjuna retrieved them and began to expound on them. And about six months ago, um, a small group of us here at Zen Center, um, including Reverend Shuri and Neely Atkinson, who is unfortunately not in attendance. Um, we began studying 
one of Nagarjuna's texts, uh, which is known as the Mula Madhyamaka Karika. And if it's okay, I'm just going to say MMK from here on out, um, which uh, means uh, the root verses on the middle way. Uh, when we, it's, it's, it's hard to overstate the importance in Buddhist thought of the MMK. Um, it's a foundational text of the Madhyamaka school of uh, Buddhism, which um, has had profound influence on all uh, Mahayana Buddhist teachings since, um, and has been the source of you know countless commentaries over the centuries, uh, um, including um, including this one. <coughs> Uh, the which is written by this is a commentary on the MMK written by Dr. Barry Curzon, MD, which uh, he is the personal physician to the Dalai Lama. Um, Nagarjuna's teachings have been incredibly important to the Tibetan tradition of uh, Buddhism. Um, but as I say, this is just one of centuries and centuries worth of commentaries that have come out specifically about this text. And when Tim and Neely and I began uh, studying this text, we realized very quickly why there are so many commentaries. And the reason for that is that the MMK itself is comparatively brief. It's uh 27 chapters, um, about 450, I think, 454 line verses. Um, but the reason it's brief is that it was intended to be memorized um, as an aid to a student's uh, understanding and recall of um, these more expansive teachings that they would have gotten um, from, you know, from their teacher. <clears throat> um, and these teachings of Nagarjuna's, what they do is they employ a very sophisticated mode of logic, or rather many different modes of logic, um, with the aim of refuting, that's not, I want to, I want to retract the word refuting. Um, various modes of kind of logical analysis to analyze um, our conception of pretty much everything. Like the Heart Sutra, for instance, the, the Heart Sutra doesn't, doesn't seem particularly interested in explaining itself. It doesn't, you know, Avalokiteshvara doesn't tell Shariputra why form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Um, 
That might be because in part her realization of that is beyond language. Um, that is not the case for Nagarjuna. Um, Nagarjuna's, these 27 chapters, each of them take up um, a different object of contemplation in order to demonstrate its lack of intrinsic existence. Uh, the first chapter uh, seeks to demonstrate that motion doesn't actually exist, for instance. Uh, and it's, it's, it's hard, again, to overstate the importance of this development of thought um, to the trajectory of Mahayana Buddhist thought. Virtually um, all schools of Mahayana Buddhism claim Nagarjuna in their lineage. Um, but again, the Tibetan tradition has especially embraced and developed this teaching. Um, so when we began studying this book, I had another one of those experiences that I described earlier where something like really kind of grabbed me and captured my attention. Um, and it didn't necessarily do that because it, I agreed with it. Um, in fact, I, I didn't understand it, um, but there was something telling me that it was important for me to understand this. Um, and it's a set of concepts that developed through this process of elaboration um, from the Mulamadhyama Kakarika. Um, and these concepts cast a different light on the relationship between form and emptiness that is referred to in the Heart Sutra um, and goes into the process by which uh, we humans tend to confuse ourselves into so much trouble and stress and suffering. So I want to read this section, um, which again is, is written by Dr. Curzon um, based on the teachings that he has received from the Dalai Lama and others. Um, so here we go. Term section um, called Identifying the Object of Negation. Okay, identifying the object of negation. Dr. Curzon writes here, he says, there are two types of objects, there are two types of object of negation. There's the object of negation of the mind, the subjective object of negation, and the object of negation through reasoning, the objective object of negation goes on to explain that self-grasping is the object of negation of the mind. It exists. It is the basis for us wandering in samsara. 
The intrinsic self is the object of negation through reasoning. It does not exist. In order to eliminate the object of negation of mind, self-grasping, we have to logically use reasoning to establish the absence of the objective of of the objective object of negation. I'm gonna read that again. I'm gonna read that whole thing again. There are two types of objects of, of negation. There's the object of negation of the mind, which is the subjective object of negation, and the object of negation through reasoning, which is the objective object of negation. Self-grasping is the object of negation of the mind. It exists. It's the basis for us wandering in samsara. The intrinsic self is the object of negation through reasoning. It does not exist. In order to eliminate the object of negation of mind, which is self-grasping, we have to logically use reasoning to establish the absence of the objective object of negation. So when I was reading back to, to write this talk, I think that the sentence that grabbed me was the sentence that goes, self-grasping is the object of negation of the mind. It exists. And even more specifically, I think it was those last two words, it exists. It exists. The majority of, as I said, the majority of the MMK is an attempt to demonstrate the ways that things don't exist in the ways that we normally conceive of them. Um, like there are very few instances uh, in which something is outright argued to exist. So, <laughs> What is it that is being claimed to exist here? Um, the answer is, appears to be self-grasping, self-grasping. Um, and to explain this, um, Dr. Curzon quotes a commentary that came a bit later. He says um, that seeing with their wisdom that all afflictions and all faults stem from the identity view grasping at the perishable collection and knowing that self is the focus of this identity view, the practitioner engages in the negation of selfhood, the perishable collection. All faults stem from the identity view grasping at the perishable collection. In the Heart Sutra, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva clearly sees that all five aggregates are empty. And these five aggregates are what are being referred to here as the perishable, excuse me, the perishable collection. These are body, Five aggregates are body, <clears throat> sensations, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness. The identity view 
grasps at these fleeting, unstable phenomena and sees a self. And not just a self, an intrinsic self, a substantial, essential identity, a real, natural, given self. Me. Some part of ourselves, which is here being called the identity view, grasps at these components of our existence and sees, imposes a very convincing sense of self onto them. And according to the Madhyamaka tradition, this exists. This is real. This is something that happens. Um, and not only is it ultimately a delusion, it's also the source of all of our afflictions and problems and stress. So according to Nagarjuna, the solution to this quandary is paying very close attention and performing very rigorous analysis and employing very careful and honest attention to our experience. Cause it's not like, you know, we can just bear down and, and stop grasping, you know, what we, according to Nagarjuna, what we really need to determine for ourselves individually is whether or not these identities um, that we perceive are appropriate. Now, of course, we don't only impose an intrinsic identity onto ourselves. Um, you know, we do it with everything that we experience. Um, you know, when we look at this table, there's a table over here, small one. When we look at this table, you know, when I look at this table, I see a table. You know, I know, I may know on some level that, you know, what I'm actually experiencing is like a, you know, momentary confluence of myriad causes and conditions, you know, the tree that made the wood, the soil that grew the tree, the craftsperson who created it, glue, effort, families, rivers, oceans, on and on. But I really do see a table. I really see a table. And the Madhyamakas have like what I think is a really cool explanation for, for how that happens. Um, and here, here it goes.
So the basis for this table identity are is the parts, right? The legs, the screws, the top. And you know, due to the way that it has been arranged and constructed, we're able to apply this identity of table. Something that I thought was really interesting to note here is that even now, these factors are completely dependent on each other to exist, right? It's a table because of its parts and it's parts of a table or because we've identified a table in them. Neither of these factors, table and parts of a table, have an existence independent of each other. But regardless, we see something. Our Nagarjuna says that our senses, our senses themselves have been conditioned by the constant working of our brilliant, powerful, identity-making, conceptual human minds such that an entity instantaneously appears to us. Now, our senses can't elaborate on that identity. Um, you know, an entity or a phenomena is sensed, but it's our mental consciousness that labels it. Okay, so is this a problem? No, no, I mean, not if you need to put your water somewhere, it's not an issue, but also it's yes, because when we look more closely, what we see is that we don't simply put identities on the factors of our experience. We go further than that and we put inherent identities on them. Like, despite all the evidence to the contrary, I perceive not only a table identity, but an essence, a, a table essence, something real. So there are a few synonyms for this, you know, essential and inherent and existence that we perceive in things. Uh, it's called inherent existence. Um, you know, the identity exists independent of any other factors, intrinsic existence, existing by its own nature, existing from the side of the object itself. These all refer to a very convincing and natural feeling of substantiality and permanence and solidity that we sense in everything that we encounter. So in the Heart Sutra, Avalokiteshvara comes to see that things don't actually possess this intrinsic, separate, permanent identity. That all dharmas, all phenomena and entities are empty of that and thus relieved all perception. <clears throat>
why did this specific realization of emptiness relieve all suffering? I think it's easy to hear that Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva clearly saw that all five aggregates, along with ignorance and extinction of ignorance and old age and death and extinction of old age and death and suffering and its cause and its cessation, the path to its cessation, knowledge and attainment are empty. And here that she realized that they don't exist. But according to Nagarjuna, that was not her realization. Um, And according to Nagarjuna, to understand emptiness as non-existence would be a big mistake. He explains that the, in the MMK, that the teachings given by all the Buddhas are founded perfectly on two truths, the truth of worldly convention and the ultimate truth. This idea of two truths is fundamental to Nagarjuna's understanding of reality. And I think it's very natural to hear these two truths as being in opposition to each other. Um, and I also think it's very natural natural to hear that one truth, probably the one called ultimate truth, is, you know, truer, more true than the other. But that is not, I've learned, how Nagarjuna sees it. In Nagarjuna's worldview, these two truths are equally valid, equal, equally functioning, and dependent on each other to exist. So when Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva clearly saw that all dharmas are marked by emptiness, what she clearly saw was that their inherent separate true existence was her own mental fabrication. But that doesn't by default strip them of any other qualities of existence. In fact, seeing through that fabrication allowed her to see things as they truly are. The fact that they are totally free of this inherent existence means that they're able to change and transform. Um, And Nagarjan's position is that without this ability to change and to transform, um, in fact, without change and transformation being the fundamental nature of things, nothing can exist. He writes, if all of this is not empty, there would be neither arising nor disintegration. Thus it would follow that the Four Noble Truths would not exist. If things were not dependently originated, he asks, how could suffering come to be? That which is impermanent is spoken of as suffering by the Buddha. That does not apply to intrinsic existence. 
if suffering existed intrinsically, cessation would not exist. Intrinsic existence denotes existing forever. Therefore, it undermines cessation. So in this way, emptiness does not make things any less real. So when we analyze the contents of our experience to in search of their fundamental <coughs> essence, we aren't invalidating them. You know, we are attempting to see them as they truly are. Um, I'll close with a story about Shunmyu Suzuki Roshi. The uh, one of the founders of our language. Uh, this is a story told by his biographer, David Chadwick, about one of his early encounters with uh, Suzuki Roshi and his teachings. Um, he said that one night in February of 1968, I sat among 50 black-robed fellow students, mostly young Americans, at Zen Mountain Center, Tassajara Springs, 10 miles inland from Big Sur, California, deep in the mountain wilderness. The kerosene lamplight illuminated our breath in the winter air of the unheated room. Shunryu Suzuki had just concluded a lecture from his seat on the altar platform. Thank you very much, he said softly, with a genuine feeling of gratitude. He took a sip of water, cleared his throat, and looked around at his students. Is there some question, he asked, just loud enough to be heard above the sound of the creek gushing by in the darkness outside. I bowed hands together and caught his eye. Hi, he said, meaning yes. Suzuki Roshi, I've been listening to your lectures for years, I said, and I really love them, and they're very inspiring, and I know that what you're talking about is actually very clear and simple, but I must admit I just don't understand. I love it, but I feel like I could listen to you for a thousand years and still not get it. Could you please just put it in a nutshell? Can you reduce Buddhism to one phrase? Everyone laughed. He laughed. What a ludicrous question. I don't think any of us expected him to answer it. It was, you know, he was not a man you could pin down and he didn't like to give his students something definite to cling to. He often said to not have some, uh, quote, some idea of what Buddhism was, unquote. But Suzuki did answer. He looked at me and said, everything changes. And then he asked for another question. 